Hello and welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my front is Theodore under the PC. You know, Theodore, the of Christ. it's kind of rare that it's just me and you, but we just had a really good video that was just me and you. So here's hoping that we have another one. Uh, Sebastian's on vacay, um, so here we are. And a real switch up, a real power dynamic switch up. I am usually the dictator of the pause button on these response videos that we're about to do. But uh, Discord, our recording software, was not being uh, nice to my share screen. So it's, in fact, Theodore that has the rule of the pause button. So Theodore, use your power um, probably better than me, honestly, because I think I pause way too much. So without further ado, um, Theodore's been on a roll, by the way. I have to just keep complimenting him because he not only found, finds all these guys, he finds the Mormons, he finds that Mormon convert we just talked to, David Alexander, um, but he's also finding some of these response videos to go to. So diligent work in the research department by Theodore. I want to give uh, the success metrics to him, uh, all through God, of course. Uh, but this is another guy that, that Theodore found who's talking, it's an atheist talking about 12 contradictions in the Bible. We've heard some really garbage takes on this before, um, but think this video is a little more reasonable in its supposed contradictions it finds so do you have any final thoughts to before we let him roll no <laughs> all right let's roll it okay if you had asked me when i was a fundamentalist evangelical christian if the bible contained any contradictions my answer would have been a firm and resounding no and when non-christians would point out apparent contradictions it was all too easy for me to find ways to reconcile most of them exodus 28 through 11 says that you're not supposed to work on the seventh day of the week or the sabbath because that day's holy but romans 14 5 says it literally makes no difference easy Exodus 20 is clearly a Jewish law applying only to the Jews before Jesus came and fulfilled the law, whereas Romans 14 is written to the Gentiles after Jesus' resurrection. Throughout the Bible, God gives different commands to different people, and many of them are contextual, not universal or eternal. Contradiction reconciled. Crisis averted. Well, you want to pause it? Yeah. Uh, they're not contextual. I mean, of course, there's always context to everything, but um, the way we would understand Sabbath, and, and Paul explains it there in the verse and does other elsewhere, is that Jesus is now our rest. I mean, it's explained in Hebrews specifically on this point. So there, there are some of God's laws that are fulfilled, not done away with, but completely fulfilled by Christ. So just like he is now our high priest, so no human performs high priestly duties anymore. It would not be pro-God's law. Um, the high priest laws did not go away. They are not fulfilled by Jesus, like he's doing them in heaven. And then same with sacrifices. Sacrifices are not done away with. They're just now Jesus's and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, offering better sacrifices. Um, again, most of that is explained in Hebrews. That's where I would go mostly for fulfillment of the Jewish law. Um, there are many laws that are totally still valid. They were not contextual for the Jews of that day. They're still valid today. So it's still good that we punish murderers. It's still good that you don't steal. Um, none of that changed with the coming of the New Testament. Um, so that wasn't fulfilled by Jesus in that, he did, it's still a totally valid law. He's not doing it in our stead. Um, so in that way, this isn't just like a weird post-Bible justification of why we look at those two contradictions and say they're not contradictions. It's a totally explained passage in Hebrews talking about exactly why we do. So this is not something that we should... Um, that, that Christians blow past today. It's something that is digested today. And not that every Christian knows that, but that is how we should take it. It's, um, it's expressly explained in Hebrews why certain laws are fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. One four. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Will it? 
because 2 Peter 3.10 says that the earth will be burned up. In this case, the genre of the book is important. Ecclesiastes is a poetic book of wisdom and pithy sayings, packed with analogies and metaphors. This is a poetic way of contrasting the earth with a human lifespan. You're not meant to take every figure of speech literally. I mean, he anthropomorphizes the sun for God's sake. There was a you know, pause it. <laughs> It's not going well. <laughs> <laughs> you need that ad block here. Um, so uh, just to address that, I appreciate that. So even though we disagree on the nuance of how he's taking the first like the law contradictions, um, he's saying that he's not really going to focus on the law contradictions because there's a, a reasonable fulfillment of them in scripture. Great. He's saying he's also not going to focus on contradictions that clearly aren't because of the genre. Great. I mean, obviously, I don't even know why it's worth addressing that because uh, of course you take the genre into account, but Thanks, I appreciate it. And we have we have seen um, that BS Lewis guy uh, like found every supposed contradiction, and uh, half of them were like just straight up semantics from um, from allegories and, and analogies. So I appreciate that he's basically saying he's not going to address those. I'm no longer religious, and I have zero obligation to defend the Bible, but I find many of these kinds of contradictions rather weak. And when often biblically illiterate non-believers use examples like this to prove that the Bible is contradictory, it comes off as either ignorant or a little bit desperate. I agree. Even as an atheist, my gut reaction is to swat these contradictions down, since you don't study the Bible incessantly for 20 years without learning how to defend it. Other contradictions, though, are a little harder to reconcile. Second Chronicles 36.9 says that the Old Testament Jewish king Jehoiakim was eight years old when he began to reign as king, while Second Kings 24.8 says that Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign. This seems minor, but it's a contradiction because it can't be both. Oh, and uh, that's according to the King James Version for all you King James purists out there. If you're reading the NIV, the humans who wrote it ignored our oldest Hebrew manuscripts and edited out. Oh, okay. You can pause this. Well, he goes on to... Can I let him go a little longer? Sure. And yes, if you look at the context, it's clearly talking about the same King Jehoiakim who became king when his father, King Jehoiakim, was ousted by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So how do Christians try to explain away this discrepancy? We don't have a lot of details about Jehoiakim. We have tons of details about a king named David. With David, he was anointed king in private when he was a teenager. Many years later, he was anointed king publicly, but only over a couple tribes. And then he was anointed king over um, all of Israel when he was still older. So the same may be the case with Jehoiakim, that uh, kings might be writing about a, uh, the, the public inauguration of his kingship, and Chronicles, when it's a younger age, can be writing about a private ceremony. No, this isn't that easy of a contradiction to explain away. In Chronicles, when Jehoiakim is just eight, his dad is hauled off in chains as a prisoner to Babylon, and he's put directly on the throne in his dad's place. This isn't a prophetic anointing. He's a Babylonian vassal. He rules for just three months before Nebuchadnezzar ousts him and he's replaced by his uncle Zedekiah. In other words, he's permanently removed from office before he even turned 10. In Kings, Jehoiakim doesn't become king until after his dad is killed, when he's 18. Just as in Chronicles, he rules for three months before Nebuchadnezzar ousts him and makes his uncle Zedekiah the next Babylonian vassal. Or here's another one. 1 Chronicles 19 and 2 Samuel 10 till the- Wait. Okay. How's that one? Yeah, and- and. To point it out, um, one, your differences we are willing to talk about because um, any biblical inerrancist, I mean, saving the weird exceptions, um, will tell you that we believe in biblical inerrancy only in regards to the original manuscripts. So some changes aren't reasonable to say that they weren't in the original manuscripts. For example, like full context verses, um, we would say 
um, aren't reasonably not in the original manuscripts, like whole stories that are in the New Testament, for example, um, if they don't match up, well, that's that's a real contradiction. Numbers, on the other hand, like 18 or 8, or some of the ages um, of the people post-flood, um, there are legitimate differences between manuscript traditions, and that's just a case of what do the original manuscripts say. So when he says that the King James Version has the difference in ages, but uh, modern translations often don't, it's because they're taking different manuscript traditions into account. So that's just a difference in, in methodology of how we're determining what the original document said. And um, because of numerology and the way numbers were recorded, especially in Hebrew, and uh, transliterated into Greek sometimes with the Septuagint and others, we have a very difficult time discerning um, the true numbers that are used often because letters were stand-in for numbers and it was a super common scribal error to drop them or to change them. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I admit that 8 and 18 are different numbers and that would be contradictory, but it doesn't bother me because I know the truth is one of the or the other. And therefore, like the original manuscript um, tradition exists in, in one of those two lineages. It's just which one do we pick? So I don't don't have a problem with this, especially because we now have things called computer-based genealogical methodologies um, that allow computers to compare all the manuscript traditions to algorithmically define which ones were most likely the original manuscripts. And it's a really slow process. It takes supercomputers to do it. Um, and they've only done it for a couple books of the Bible now. But as they go through, it is correcting some even like traditional texts that our current translations are using, which is the Nethley Allen 29th edition, I think, is the current edition of the original text we use for the New Testament. And um, all that to say, yes, yes, there are going to be number differences um, occasionally. It's not that common, but sometimes you see it. Uh, but it doesn't bother us and it doesn't battle inerrancy because one of the two is right and it's just it's just us that's getting it wrong it's not the manuscript that's getting it wrong there you go right and he mentioned that the like it was reconciled or uh, corrected in the niv bible um but i checked several other modern translations as you said um and so the net the esv uh the nasv the hcsv um they all have the they all correct it to 18 uh, years. And then they also, I guess, depending on your Bible, you'll see a footnote mm -hmm. where they even let you know that there's a Hebrew manuscript, a Syriac manuscript, and some Septuagint uh, manuscripts mm -hmm. that indeed say 18. So there you go. So that's just a matter of which manuscript you're using, not whether the original said it or not. Sure exact same story of how Hanun, the king of the Amorites, disgraces the Jewish king David's messengers and sends Aramean mercenaries to battle against David's army who massacre them. But 2 Samuel says that David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen, while 1 Chronicles says that he killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. What we've got here is and while I admit that these types of small numerical errors are seemingly insignificant to the overall message of the Bible, they post a much bigger problem to my notion that the Bible was inerrant, that every word... But see, that's that's the exact problem. If, if your definition of inerrancy was based off of these things, um, you had a bad definition of inerrancy because we all agree that humans can make errors. It's the question of whether or not God's inspired scripture made errors. And so we would 
once again testify that the original manuscript language is out there. It's one of the traditions that has been preserved because of God's providence, but just because there are differences of scholars taking particular genealogies of manuscript, right, ones that say um, 7,000 and some that say 700, um, doesn't actually impact the inerrancy of the Bible because one of the two is true. So it could be that your particular Bible has a particular problem at a particular spot, but the Bible as a concept is not um, suddenly not inerrant because of these kind of contradictions. Horsemen and footmen, I mean, it could be that we are translating it wrong as well because um, it's from two Hebrew sources and Chronicles is ex post uh, the Babylonian exile, post return from Cyrus. And the writings from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are from pre Exile. So those are pretty distant generations writing about them, and it could just be, again, a translational thing. So, yeah. And I think this article is uh, saying that one included some while another included others or left others out or not. But yeah, you're saying just numbers thing. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you can make a lot of weird excuses, Sorry. but I, I think it's pretty, pretty reasonable that it is a number mis mistranslation by God himself and literally perfect. This isn't as big of an issue for every Christian. Catholics believe that scripture is just a part of the puzzle and that divinely appointed church fathers are necessary to interpret it and determine church doctrine, communicating God's will. But Protestants, who ever since the Reformation removed the middleman and ditched the reliance on papal hierarchy, shifting to a belief in sola scriptura, the idea that scripture alone was sufficient, since it was the perfect inerrant word of God himself, to inerrantist Protestants like I used to be, these albeit small contradictions were a far harder pill to swallow. Okay. After you, all, you can pause it. confidently know the will. The Catholic thing is kind of ridiculous. I don't know if you heard Catholic apologists say that kind of comparison, but um, first of all, Catholics who deny inerrancy of scripture in this way, they would have the same problems with the text unless they're like super lib Catholics who don't care, um, like the current Pope. But the papal authority, church authority, is not what any Christian should rely on for the authority of the Bible. So, I mean, I'm fully agreement with, with you, um, holy Kool-Aid, that as Protestants <laughs> or any other believing Christian, we shouldn't hold tradition as the truth. We should hold God's tradition, like the, the real scriptures as the truth. And so... Um, I, I don't think Catholics really have a, a out here. They have the exact same problem that we do, and that is you have to you have to look at these biblical supposed contradictions. Uh, you can't be saved by the church's interpretation. Of God, if our only source is contradictory. So I ask again, are there any contradictions in the Bible? Let's look at some more, but let's stick mostly to the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, because they're all in the New Testament. They're all the same genre, narrative accounts relaying a series of events. They're all talking about the same people and events, and the time, place, and context are the same. Only two of the four canonical gospels even tell the story of Jesus' birth, and these two accounts are irreconcilably different. I and if God can use a man without arms and legs to be his hand. In both stories, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but in Matthew, after Jesus' birth, King Herod hears about baby Jesus, described as the future king of the Jews. He feels threatened and has every baby under the age of two slaughtered, while Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, escape with their child to Egypt until after Herod's death. Compare this to Luke's gospel, where not only is there no mention of Herod's massacre, but Jesus' parents peacefully stick around Bethlehem until it's time for the baby's ritual purification, which was 33 days after his birth, according to the Jewish law in Leviticus 12. They do that in Jerusalem, where Herod was ruling. 
And while there, a righteous old man and a prophetess approach baby Jesus in broad daylight in a crowded temple and start shouting to everyone who will listen that this is the coming Messiah. To Jews at the time, the Messiah was believed to be a warrior king of prophecy who would overthrow the Romans. And yet Herod does nothing, and Jesus' family, immediately and uneventfully, head back to their home in Nazareth, about a month after his birth. Joseph lives in Nazareth. The only reason that they go to Bethlehem is for some weird census. So when they move back to Nazareth, they're just naturally going home. But in Matthew, Joseph and Mary are residents of Bethlehem. There's no need for a census to get them there, and hence no mention of it. There's no mention of a manger either, because why would you give birth in a barn when you have a local home? After Jesus is born, Magi from the East set out on a journey from a foreign country to meet him, and he's still with his family in Bethlehem when they arrive, living in a local house. And this was likely significantly after Jesus' birth, since the author of Matthew uses the Greek word paideon to describe Jesus as a young boy when the wise men arrived, rather than the Greek word brephos, or infant, which would have been used if he had just been born. And after fleeing to Egypt, rather than returning to Nazareth, because according to Luke, that was their home, they only relocate there because Herod's cruel son Archelaus was now ruling over Bethlehem, which was their home, but they couldn't go back to. On an ironic side note though, Herod's other son, Herod Antipas, was ruling in Nazareth where they fled to, and according to the Gospels, would later play a role in the execution of both John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, and Jesus himself. Oh, and uh... Herod died in 4 BCE, so if Jesus was born during his reign at least a year or two before that, as Matthew claims, heck, even if he was born just a week before Herod died, then this still directly contradicts Luke's claim that he was born during the census of Governor Quirinius, yeah. because Quirinius didn't become governor until 6 BCE. Okay, we should pause it now because we're getting another contradiction. Herod's so on the actual narrative differences between Luke and Matthew, I don't know if you have any comments, Theodore, but um, they do line up. He says they're irreconcilable, which is kind of insane, right. because he makes assumptions. They're only irreconcilable on the assumptions he makes. They're not irreconcilable on what they actually say. Uh, Matthew, like you said, has them in Bethlehem. He has the baby being born in Bethlehem, which is consistent with Luke. The baby is also born in Bethlehem. Jesus is also born in Bethlehem. And then Herod, only when he hears from the wise men, which he did not point out because it helps mesh the narratives, only when Herod hears from the wise men that they're looking for the king of the Jews, does he go out and have all the two-year-olds and under males executed in and around Bethlehem. So it's not even countrywide, one. It's two. It probably was when he was a, a, a young child, not an infant, because um, the wise men probably got to him later. And by probably, I mean, this is the way we make the accounts mesh. In the same way, when Luke describes them going back to Nazareth, it does not necessarily mean that they didn't... Um, settled down in Bethlehem later. It doesn't mean that they didn't return to Nazareth later as, as Matthew describes. And they could have gone later. It could have been a, a time skip because Luke also doesn't talk about the retreat to Egypt. And so both accounts can mesh totally fine. They, they don't contradict. They just don't give details that you're assuming um, are different. So you assume they went directly back to Nazareth. You're assuming they never went back to Bethlehem. You're assuming that the wise men um, found him as a baby, which I know is like Christmas traditional, but that's not actually in the scriptures. And then you were also assuming that when they retreat to Egypt and they come back, um, that they settle in Nazareth because it just happens to be outside of Judea, because Matthew doesn't mention that it's the hometown of Jake, uh, Joseph, but it is the hometown of Joseph, as Luke says. So that would make all the more sense. It just, they, they don't contradict each other. They just give different details, which as many Christians will say, so I'm not unique in this saying this, you expect 
multiple witnesses from actually legitimately independent lines of gathering documents would have different details to share. And so Luke and Matthew are giving totally different details about Jesus' birth that do mesh up. And then on this front, on this, this um, uh, 4 BC of Herod's death and then 6 CE AD of the reign of the governor of Syria, um, this is a total sources problem. In that, if you look at the sources, there's very few sources that talk about the reigning governorship of um, the governor of Syria. That's that's in question here. And um, not only that, is it few sources. Two, there are also different ways that people take censuses. And so the description from Luke that says that it was um, before the, the census could mean that it was... Um, within the census period, like there, there's another one that comes up later, and it could mean that uh, this same census was taken by the same to-be governor before he was governor and he eventually became governor, which was a practice uh, done by the Romans, especially under Augustus, where they'd have uh, a census, which is a hard thing to do, and you need somebody who's got a steady hand and able to rule a, a place. You give them a trial run of where they might govern by having them run a census before they're actually governor. So um, these two things are reconcilable as well. And again, you trust ancient sources on datings um, pretty heartily um, to, to place the true date of Herod's death at 4 BC and the true governorship of um, the governor of Syria at 6 CE when the Bible has a contradicting date, like you're just combating two ancient texts and the Bible has a way earlier origin than um, the origins of Josephus and one, I think one Roman historical document have we found and their, their copies are like way later. Like they're, they're copies of copies of copies, whereas the Bible, we have much earlier dating documents. So the, the Bible would normally be taken as the true dates for these things, except that people hate the Bible. So they don't. Um, this is, this is probably the most serious contradiction and it's not a actual biblical contradiction. It's a contradiction between the Bible and other Roman sources, um, which is pretty minor, honestly. So that one that makes me shake in my boots. <laughs> well, you said it all. <laughs> all right. We, we've seen this Just one before, played. so I've had to look this one up, um, which is why I had the background. Death. In his handbook of biblical chronology, Bible scholar Jack Finnegan tried to nudge the date of Herod's death forward mm -hmm. by showing that some copies of the ancient historian Josephus book, Antiquities of the Jews, place Herod's death in the 22nd year of Emperor Tiberius rather than the 20th. And even if I grant him those years, even though it's not academic consensus, there's still at least an eight-year problematic gap. And when you look at the context of why Quirinius became governor, he was literally sent to Syria so that he could liquidate the estate of Herod's son, Archelaus, and annex his kingdom as a Roman province. After Herod had died, after his kingdom had been divided among his children into four parts, and after his son had ruled and then been removed from power. That's why Quirinius took the census, because he was annexing Judea, assessing it so he could tax it, and replacing Herod's son Archelaus with the Roman governor Caponius. Now we can comment. Hyundai Santa Fe wins everything. Now, there's not much information in the Gospels on Jesus between his childhood and his ministry, but I should say, on that Archelaus thing, same, same problem, same historical sourcing problem you're favoring one historical text over the other it's really just josephus and then one roman source and then equally um, the same thing applies the census could have been taken twice once when he was taking the census um, and then the second time when he was actually taking over governorship uh, equally the the reference source in luke about it being um, the census taken in the days of that governor um, allow for the census to be taken uh, before and after so it's it's not as clear cut as you might think. And maybe we'll do a whole, because I've seen it now three times from Atheist, maybe we'll do a whole thing on 
on this is just one topic because it gets kind of complicated. Uh, but the end of the day is this isn't a biblical contradiction. It's a conflict between the Bible's dating and other ancient documents dating, and it's not very many. So it's not like um, Bible v. 10,000 documents or Bible v. 10 documents. It's Bible v. 2 documents, which is pretty sparse. Performing miracles, he needed to build a following. Speaking of which, smash that subscribe button. So at the start of his ministry, each gospel has Jesus gathering disciples, starting with Andrew. In John chapter one, a local preacher named John the Baptist is chilling with this guy named Andrew. John looks up, sees Jesus and shouts out, behold, the lamb of God. On hearing this, Andrew leaves John and becomes Jesus' disciple. But in Mark chapter one, John isn't even there. And Jesus calls Andrew directly. In the first account, John the Baptist is still a free man. But Mark specifically says that Jesus called Andrew after John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod and was about to be executed. In John's account, this happened near the Jordan River the day before Jesus went north to Galilee. But in Mark's account, Jesus calls Andrew on the shores of Galilee. And after Andrew decides to follow Jesus, in John's account, he leaves to find his brother Simon Peter to tell him about Jesus. But in Mark's account, Andrew's literally sitting in a boat with his brother Simon Peter. Okay. Jesus calls both of them Simon. Yeah, we can pause right there because, again, not a contradiction, just you're making assumptions here. Um, when in when when he's called in John, when Andrew is called in John, he's the first of the brothers to call, so he goes to find Simon and tell him about Jesus. But they didn't necessarily start following him; they just heard of him and believing him and following him. Whereas Mark shows that he came again post the exile and calls them again while they're both on a boat fishing with their father. And so he, or not fishing with their father, just fishing because. John and his brother are, are fishing with their father. Any case, he calls them again, and this is when they actually start like leaving everything and following him, meaning they're leaving their occupation, their fisherman occupation and following him. Just because Andrew heard of him and then started believing in him after John doesn't mean that he actually started like being part of his entourage. So again, not a contradiction. They are different details, again, what to be expected from different sources, Mark and John, but uh, they're not they're not actually contradictions. You you can assume they're contradictions because you're assuming it's the first time they're meeting, but it's not. Now, one of the most famous stories about Jesus is how his disciple Judas betrays him with a kiss. Gotta like the editing. Psych, I'm with these guys. But what happened to Judas afterward depends on which part of the Bible you read. In the Gospel of Matthew, Judas storms back to the chief priests and returns the money that he was paid to betray Jesus by throwing it into the temple. But according to Acts, which was written by the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Judas didn't return the money at all. In Acts, Judas goes land shopping and buys a field with the money, while in Matthew, the priests buy a field with the money. In Matthew, Judas feels so guilty for betraying Jesus that he goes and hangs himself. But in Acts, he's strutting through his new field when he trips, falls, and his intestines spill out. I mean, I guess you can go to elaborate lengths to try to rectify all of these inconsistencies, rather than going with what's most likely or... Let's go to elaborate lengths. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to give you the basic elaborate length, and that is that the, the explanation in Matthew for why the priests buy the field with Judas's money is that it's blood money. Meaning that not only can they not bring it into the temple, they can't even use it themselves for their own purposes. And so in Matthew, so not, not even having to go to Acts, in Matthew, they buy it in Judas's name because it's his blood money, so they don't buy it in their own name, and they use it for the burial place for Gentiles. So like 
it's it's clearly not to be used by the priesthood or the Jewish people. They have to go use the money somehow. So in that way, Judas did buy the field because it was bought in his name with his money because of the ceremonial uncleanness of blood money. So that is exactly why it can say in Acts that Judas bought the field because he did. He just did it postmortem. And then in the same way, it was that field that Judas went and hung himself on. Um, that's why it's called the field of blood. Again, spoken in Matthew. So when Acts talks about it, uh, him tripping and spilling his guts, it's a euphemism for hanging himself. Uh, there you go. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the elaborate lengths is that he bought it postmortem and he, it's the field that he went and hung himself on. And the hanging is just it's a euphemistically called uh, tripping and spilling his guts out in Acts chapter one. Of course, Judas is a pretty hated character, especially by the recording of Acts. So that's why the euphemism is used as a, as a jab at Judas. I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, and then likewise, the, the priest buying it in Judas's stead is just Judas buying it with, uh, with, with a little time passed, right? So that's just, it's again, not a contradiction. If you assume it could be a contradiction because you could assume that the authors intend to mean that Judas strutted into the field, as you said, and then tripped and fell, um, or that he went and bought the money. He went land shopping, but it doesn't seem a little odd that he went land shopping. Um, in any case, those are the two uh, common ones, the the dating of Herod and then the Judas differences um, are the two common atheist things, and they, they really aren't. So those are the toughest that atheists usually can bring to Christianity, and with just a little bit of meshing here, um, we can show that they aren't actually contradicting each other. You can assume they are, but you assume details that aren't talked about in the Bible. And you can uh, dig more into the, like, his intestines burst or his guts burst open or whatever there a couple sciencey websites that even go into um like the bacteria breaking down the body the byproduct of bact uh, bacterial metabolism is a gas and whatever um yeah we won't go that far <laughs> or sticking to the historical method you violate occam's razor and engage in all kinds of special pleading for your document and if you're too close-minded to consider that the Bible might not be perfect, and you'd rather preserve a belief rather than follow the truth wherever it leads, then you're gonna have to bend over backwards to reconcile this stuff. But honestly, what's more likely? That the anonymous human authors of the Bible got facts wrong, misremembered accounts, and made mistakes? Or that this convoluted spaghetti document is an all-knowing God's magnum opus? If you're interested in meeting me or... So. so that just gives you, like, the summary of his view. He, his faith was in, like, the magnum opus, whatever magical thing. And if your faith is in that, then it's obviously going to crumble. Right, which, again, it's not even a, a Christian position, or it shouldn't be a Christian position, because, yeah, it's, it's not what's held to by Bible authors. Like, um, Jesus himself holds to the authority of the scriptures when he fights the Sadducees and the Sadducees say we we don't take the authority of the scriptures we only take the authority of the five books of the Bible and Jesus quotes them from the five books of the Bible to show that um, there's a resurrection of the dead occurs and so he's saying you haven't read the scriptures and don't know the power of God so we know that Jesus took the scriptures seriously from scripture but even he has to uh, reinterpret them for his audience um, because they have taken it and misinterpreted. So I don't deny that some Christians misinterpret doctrines. They misinterpret inerrancy to mean that there's literally no error, especially King James onlyists who um, go to great lengths to try to preserve specifically the King James Version, which is ridiculous. Um, but normal Christians or good Christians, our Christians, would take that 
inerrancy means in the original documents they are inerrant because you, I could I could write a Bible right now that was errant by changing words, but that doesn't make the Bible as a concept errant. You know, I can go in there and misspell every word and say that Jesus had wings and then publish it, but that doesn't make the actual Bible errant. It makes my Bible errant. So when you go to numbers problems, right, like in the very beginning, is that convoluted spaghetti of a document because there's numbers problems? It's total trans. It's just a transcription error. It's not even a... a translation error and then in the same way these two different stories that you'll see between judas and uh, judas and matthew and judas in acts are truly the, the same story they've just got different details and the same goes for the birth of jesus again is that convoluted and spaghetti no it's, it's not even a very complicated defense you know i don't even have to go to special pleading it's really just showing that they're not different accounts <laughs> right. they're the same account and should we end with some actual like doctrinal things that we definitely should not see any contradictions on absolutely and i think what any user should take away or any listener should take away from this is that if you are reading the bible it is remarkably consistent for a document forged by many many different human authors but by one god author not only is there fulfilled prophecy not only did all these sources not come from a centralized source not only is the best way to accurately preserve a document the way it actually was preserved by many many hands decentralized and not centralized by a single authority so that there couldn't be editing and censoring and and reconciling of things behind the scenes um it also rings true and doesn't contradict in any of our manuscript traditions on things that are extremely important to christianity and so if the best an atheist can do is two stories one that the herod tradition of jesus's birth and two the judas stories which don't even contradict um they've really got no ammunition just as holy kool-aid said if you're going after like supposed contradictions that aren't actually contradictions you really don't have a case these are the only contradictions past those two categories of like wrong genre or um the numbers problem right so these are just bad bad contradictions and again it is their best argument, so pretty sad. Anyways, Theodore, let's, let's wrap up with the gospel, like you said. Some real doctrine. All right. Hebrews 6, um, 1 to 2. Therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity, not laying, uh, again, this foundation, repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about washings, um, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment um and some people might take ritual ritual washings to mean something strange but for extra context you can go to hebrews 9 10 and mark 7 verse 4 colossians 2 uh 7 to 14 rooted and built up in him a and firm in your faith just as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness be careful not allow anyone to captivate you through an empty deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ for in him all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form and you have been filled with him is the head over every ruler and authority in him you also were circumcised not however with the circumcision performed by human hands but by removal of the fleshly body that is through the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you also have been raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. 
And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. He called you to this salvation through our gospel, so that you may possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that we taught you, whether by speech or by letter. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, This is the last one. You can have a bunch more, but I just chose four. So 1 Corinthians 15, to 4. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, that you received and on which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Amen. So again, pounding of true Christian doctrine, which you won't find contradictions in. And by the way, just in case any viewers are wondering, it's not like the Christian church tries to bury. I mean, you can always find historical examples of, of foolish Christians trying to bury things. But uh, as a whole, Christianity into this modern day, modern Christianity does not try to bury manuscript evidence, contradictions, any of that, we always try to bring it up because we are very concerned, more concerned than atheists, I think, on the accuracy of the manuscript we're holding because we don't want to falsely believe something is the word of God, but it is not. So we should not ever, as Christians, um, shy away from these supposed contradictions. And that's why there's a huge practice, um, smaller these days, just because a lot of the work has already been done, of trying to make sure that we have the most accurate manuscripts. So that's not only archaeological, trying to go find new ones, but it's also trying to compare current manuscripts um, to make sure we are using the correct line of manuscripts. They're almost identical. And again, these huge, huge amounts of uh, manuscript evidence we have from totally different regions of the world um, prove that what we have today is a very accurate, true-to-self version of the original manuscripts. So it only differs in very, very small places, and they really are incidental. So we have modern techniques we're using to try to get that and ever refine it. But uh, again, if with all of the length of the Bible, many, many portions of the Bible, the best atheists can get for contradictions are truly two-story things. Um, Again, the birth of Jesus and then the Judas stories which both mesh up it's pretty sad right it's actually remarkable that they can't find more contradictions if it is truly a human document which is why we say it is a god-inspired document and that's why we found our cause and serving the lord jesus christ i've been michael behind the machine and to my friend has been theodore under the pc Thank you for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. But if you want to see our beautiful faces, you're going to have to go to facebook.com forward slash foundcause or to YouTube and find us there. We are also on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.